So let's talk about latest developments with Ukraine before I get into China, because I do have a few things that I want to cover. And I mean, here's the deal. Here's what's been happening. So yesterday, of course, you may know that Russia and Ukraine met again for talks. There, there are sort of these hints that there could be a peace agreement on the way. There are some hints that NATO, well, not NATO, but that Ukraine is willing to renounce, right, to, to embrace neutrality and renounce future NATO membership. There is some indications that this may occur in the near future. But it's unclear because there's a, co there's a contradiction here. On the one hand, you have these peace talks happening almost on a, a regular basis, right? It seems like almost every week now they are gathering, uh, delegates from Russia, from Ukraine are gathering to talk about how they are going to end this conflict, right? Which uh, a ceasefire and, of course, security guarantees on both sides. That, that's what's being discussed. However, it was very troubling this week to see that at the same time that this is happening, Ukraine's president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, was going around the two, one of the, well, the United States is the foremost imperialist power and then Canada. So he visited Canadian parliament, I believe, well, he zoomed into Canadian parliament and then U.S. parliament, I believe that was the 15th and 16th of March, so just the last few days, right? So he addressed Canada's parliament and he addressed the U.S.'s Congress. And this was a Zoom conversation that he had with U.S. Congress. I believe it was a private conversation, so it wasn't necessarily an official congressional uh, gathering. It was several hundred Congress members who obviously are thirsty for the Russia-Ukraine war to continue giving Volodymyr Zelensky the airtime to essentially call for World War III. And what do I mean by that? So Volodymyr Zelensky, as peace talks are actually progressing, both sides are saying that there is a possibility that this progression could lead somewhere. You have Volodymyr Zelensky, the so-called president of Ukraine, begging the United States, demanding right a no-fly zone. And I've talked about this before. What would a no-fly zone mean for Ukraine? So what it would mean for Ukraine is that a no-fly zone would give permission for NATO to essentially cut off airspace, to occupy Ukraine's airspace, and to use Ukraine as a launching pad for a broader war against Russia. And what this would immediately look like is that NATO would start shooting down Russia, Russian planes out of the sky. And Russia would then likely respond, and I'm going to get into an interesting thread for, on Twitter that I found that I think describes this to the T. Russia would probably respond with their S-400 anti-aircraft uh, missile uh, carriers, their weapons. And I mean, those can go 400 kilometers and would likely be able to strike down any sort of attempts to launch at Russian forces uh, within Ukraine. And so that would mean that NATO would essentially then have to strike Russian territory to take out those S-400s. 
right? So essentially what it means is that there would just be an escalation after an escalation leading to a potential nuclear conflict because in order for NATO to really establish a no-fly zone against a military power like Russia, right? A, a country that does have a military capacity that is not equal to the United States, at least in scale, but technologically it is very close, if not in some ways more advanced than the United States and NATO, uh, that Russia would be able to respond. So you'd have this tit for tat that would lead to not just Russian forces being attacked on Ukraine soil, but potentially Russian forces on Russia's territory being attacked by NATO as well. And every response by Russia could trigger Article 5 in NATO's so-called constitution, which would then require all NATO countries, right? All the countries surrounding Russia, all the countries that are in Russia's periphery to intervene in some way. And so that's where you have this potential world war scenario and a potential nuclear scenario. So it begs the question, why would Volodymyr Zelensky call for this kind of destruction, right? Why would Volodymyr Zelensky believe that it's a good idea to establish a no-fly zone over his own country? Because if Zelensky is a student of history, even just the last 30 years of history, there are two really critical cases of how no-fly zones have been absolutely disastrous for the countries that they were established in. So during the U.S.-NATO bombing campaign of Yugoslavia, there was a no-fly zone established there, and NATO just targeted civilian infrastructure and essentially carved up Yugoslavia uh, through just this all-out campaign, this blazing campaign of destruction. And uh, that was all in the name of establishing this no-fly zone and protecting Yugoslavia from itself, protecting these breakaway, these carved up statelets that the U.S. and NATO were supporting. And one by one, weakening and weakening and weakening through the decimation of the Yugoslav Federation, uh, this just utter disaster that, that occurred there. And it, and it ended in 1999 in the most disgusting of manner, right? Uh, the assassination of Milosevic and, or, or at least the triangle of Milosevic and the overthrow essentially of that republic, which spelled just extreme suffering for the people of Serbia, the people everywhere in that region were just being destined. Their, their conditions declined mightily. It became a real hub of the sex trade and poverty rose immensely. And you saw the rise of right-wing forces, even of jihadist forces, right, become hugely influential. And it sounds a little bit familiar, right? Because it sounds a bit like Ukraine. It sounds a bit like Ukraine, what happened in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was carved into pieces. Its socialist republic was destroyed. And while Ukraine was not a socialist republic post-1991, after it became independent when the Soviet Union fell, certainly Ukraine prior to 2014 was more was a united country in the sense that it, its borders had 
integrity and it was not yet split wholesale between the east and the west but now it is and after the coup that became a, a dire reality right the ukraine coup government launched this brutal assault dare i say genocidal campaign against the people of donbass donetsk lugansk and the surrounding region and that's killed thousands upon thousands uh, some people say 14,000 people have died in that so-called conflict which is really a war on the people of eastern ukraine and uh, 23 more died uh, just in, in less than a week ago right where the ukraine in their ukrainian military launched a ballistic missile which killed uh, 23 people including women and children civilians people who are just going about their daily lives i mean that's been the character of the assault from the beginning and it's what led to the establishment of these independent republics that have now been recognized by russia which scaled up and escalated the impetus for intervention that russia has waged so Vladimir Zelensky, right, has Yugoslavia as a reference to to understand what a no-fly zone would mean. And maybe Zelensky thinks he's not Milosevic, he's not Yugoslavia, right? He's not Serbia, right? That he's actually in the good graces of the U.S. and NATO at this time. But, I mean, that's a mistaken judgment by Zelensky. And, and oftentimes puppets don't have any kind of judgment worth noting, right? They don't have their own independent political worldview or mindset. They just do what their masters tell them to do, what their imperialist masters tell them to do. So a no-fly zone, right, was also established in Libya in 2011. And right after that no-fly zone was established, NATO started bombing key public infrastructure, including uh, the great man-made river in Libya, which was the source of most of the country's water supply. And NATO bombed that and obliterated it, right? So NATO was intentionally targeting civilian infrastructure, intentionally placing even more suffering upon the Libyan people that was already at a fever pitch when the U.S. and NATO and all of their allies in the Gulf countries and Israel were arming these jihadists of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and other kinds of Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations to wage a campaign of terror, which the no-fly zone protected and ultimately made rendered successful and made successful through a no-fly zone. So that destroyed the country, and Libya's government was destroyed, overthrown. The Jamaharia was obliterated. And all we've seen since 2011 over the last decade has been chaos, has been, right, there's all the reports about the return of slavery, but it's not even just that, right? It's the fact that Libya does not have a functioning government, doesn't even have a functioning puppet government to speak of because of how the war devastated any kind of stability and allowed these armed groups to become the political force in the country, leading the country and fighting for control over the country, that has inevitably led to Libya once being this energy hub, 
once being a country that could meet the needs of its own people, it was the most prosperous country in Africa at that time prior to the 2011 intervention. People had education, healthcare, right? I even met someone when I was in Massachusetts who had a family who migrated here and she was getting paid a very decent sum of money. I think it was around four to 5,000 a month to live in the United States so that her children could receive an education. And so Libya had a really robust social welfare system, a really robust uh, political system that was geared towards the needs of the people. And of course, Libya was also a stalwart, a leader in supporting the solidarity movements from Ireland to Palestine to South Africa, Mozambique, right? The liberation movements in Africa against colonialism. And uh, Muammar Gaddafi had plans through the African Union to establish an independent military for the African continent and to establish a, a gold reserve currency, the dinar, which would effectively move the African continent away from dependence on the U.S. dollar, which has been a huge problem for these uh, intensely indebted African nations, which have depended upon IMF loans and Western finance to ultimately uh, develop and control their economies. And that has been a disaster. It's led to just overwhelming poverty and stagnation and crisis for much of the continent. And so Gaddafi had this vision and the United States and NATO used a no-fly zone to take him out. So Zelensky probably understands that he's not Muammar Gaddafi and that likely wouldn't happen to him. But I think where he's miscalculating is the fact that the United States and NATO doesn't really care about Zelensky, so to speak, doesn't care about Ukraine's overall stability and its interests. What's driving Zelensky to call for a no-fly zone is ultimately the weapons contractors, the militarists behind the United States and NATO. I mean, NATO countries are forced to purchase U.S.-produced weapons, and most of them come from military contractors like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. That's why the stocks are booming right now. The stocks are booming for these corporations because they see the prospect of a conflict that could have this permanent market value for them. And that is why Zelensky begs for this no-fly zone, even as representatives of his own country are trying to broker a ceasefire agreement. There's obviously powerful interests that do not want to see a ceasefire agreement. And so Zelensky is willing to promote a policy and call for a policy that would lead the country into a third world war. And it would not be pretty for Ukraine because regardless of how you look at this, whether it's Russia now having to scale up its military operations because of a no-fly zone, as well as NATO weaponry using Ukraine as a launching pad, none of that spells good things for Ukraine's overall stability. It spells just destruction and chaos. And if Zelensky thinks he would be safe from that, I think that is just one of the most ridiculous accusation, uh, ridiculous assertions that one could make if we were to put ourselves in his shoes. The only thing that could keep Zelensky safe from either popular revolt or the fact that a no-fly zone would intensify the military situation in the country and put a big target on his back, right? Because immediately the Ukraine's government would become an enemy state. 
especially on the Russian side. It would become an enemy state on the Russian side, any of Russia's allies, right? So that's a target on your back. And the only thing that could save Zelensky in that way would be to be airlifted out of the country to safety, right? There are rumors that the imperialists were already doing that. That has already happened. It has not been verified. But that is the only thing that could keep Zelensky safe in such a scenario. So he's probably banking on that. But for us, we can't bank on that because we're not the imperialist puppet masters, or at least people watch my show aren't puppeteer, you know, aren't, aren't being puppeted around by imperialism. Maybe some of you, maybe some of the trolls have this idea that there's a vested interest in them for World War III, but most people just don't believe that. So in effect, we have to be very firm and say no to a no-fly zone, that this is an absolute disaster. And it's something, honestly, that the U.S. and NATO have not seriously entertained. So here's the other thing. The United States, for all of its so-called support for Ukraine, is not trying to help Ukraine fast-track membership into even the European Union, right? Because the U.S. at the heart of this Russia-Ukraine crisis wants to see Europe starve as well. It wants Europe to come begging for U.S. fracked gas and energy. It wants to cut Europe away from the Asian market. It wants to do all of those things. So it's not going to say, okay, Ukraine, become part of the EU and strengthen the EU. No, the U.S. is actively preventing such a scenario from occurring. And then you have the fact that the U.S. is not fast-tracking a, a formalized membership for Ukraine into NATO. They're not going to do that either. And the reason for it is because Ukraine is not viewed as valuable to the imperialists. It's not. It's only valuable insofar as it can be used as a launch pad for its larger new Cold War on Russia. That's the only value that Ukraine has for the U.S. and NATO. So, of course, the U.S. and NATO will use Ukraine as the place, as a sort of de facto NATO state along Russia's border. Of course, it will do that. But to formalize that relationship would ultimately bring Ukraine into a status of somewhat equality, at least with the other NATO states. The United States doesn't view any of these countries, whether it's the European countries like Germany or whether it's the uh, smaller countries like Turkey. It doesn't view any of them like equals. But then you have the sub, maybe like the junior imperialist countries who also don't want to see Ukraine be elevated to the status of equal, right? That would be absolutely preposterous in their minds. And some of it is ideological, but it's also political because one of the ways that imperialism gets its way is not merely by expansion, but it's about creating crises. So even just the conversation about NATO membership, the, the idea that Ukraine is, is being threatened in and of itself that gives imperialism all it needs to justify its interventions. You bring Ukraine into NATO, and now you have a troublesome dynamic where you are now on the accountable side, right? It's not just Russia is being evil. Now you have admitted Ukraine, and you've created a political situation that might be untenable and lead to this third world war we've been talking about. So 
that is a big piece of this is that the United States is playing its own kind of chess. It makes up its own rules to this game of chess, right? It's not playing the chess that Russia and China have been playing, right? In terms of multipolarity and figuring out how to navigate in this very hostile global context dominated by imperialism. That's not the chess game they're playing. They're playing the imperialists led by the United States and NATO are playing a chess of their own making, right? They're making up the rules as they go along and using geopolitics as a mechanism for measuring just how far they can go to antagonize Russia, to expand their dominance, to sanction Russia, to do all of these things that have been happening with the least possible consequences for them, right? It's always about this cost-benefit analysis. The economy, the capitalist economists, when they say that term, that's a term that's used throughout in military strategy across the bourgeois, the imperialist landscape, right? And so we also have to employ that here and think how are they are thinking, how these NATO strategists, right? How they're thinking about this conflict. And they certainly, that's why Biden says over and over and over again, we're not going to send troops into Ukraine. We're not going to have NATO directly fight Ukraine uh, for Ukraine, but we will support our NATO allies, which excludes Ukraine, but also gives the United States the space to say, here are these weapons. Here is this weaponry we can send to Poland. We can send directly to Ukraine. We can send to these third-party countries in NATO. And then we can say, well, we did our job. And let's see how this goes, right? Let's see where this goes and what political opportunities and economic opportunities for the military contractors, for the energy corporations, fossil fuels, where that can go. So. Yeah, I mean, that's basically where we're at with our our friend Zelensky here. He just shows himself to be more and more of a puppet every step of the way. You know, every single development that involves him just exposes more and more what his role is. And he was elected in 2019 on a mandate to implement a ceasefire, to really implement the ceasefire, the Minsk II Accords, with the East and to abide by them. And that did not happen. And it's only worsened since his reign, the assault on Donbass. And he was also elected on the idea that Ukraine would move further toward neutrality, that it would not be as friendly toward the idea of NATO membership. And then we've seen what has happened over the last what is it now, four months, right, since November, there's just been this clamoring and clamoring to protect Ukraine from Russia. And now this intervention has given more steam into that. And it'll be curious to see how this all develops. But I do believe, right, that there is a possibility of a peace agreement, a ceasefire happening soon. But will it be enforced? Will Ukraine abide by the agreement or will the U.S. and NATO place pressure, right, in ways that maybe we can't see that continues the fighting in some way, right, that maybe continues the assault on eastern Ukraine and places even more pressure on Russia to maybe think about breaking the ceasefire. There's so many possibilities. We saw, I mean, we're seeing all of this false flag kind of material, right, all of this propaganda that's coming out, the Mariupol hospital bombing that was completely fake news. Now there's this children's 
there's this theater that's supposed to have children in it. It's completely unverified, and we don't know if Russia actually bombed it or if Russia actually bombed children and people. It's not validated at the moment, and Russia's foreign ministry is saying, no, do not listen to the reports. So now we we should question what actually had has gone on there in this most recent bombing. And then, of course, we had the bioweapon possibility, bioweapons possibly with these labs that had been found where the U.S. Department of Defense had been funding them. And Victoria Nuland told uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee that, you know, there's a danger of Russia getting this information and that insinuated that possibly there is a bioweapons attack. And now you see some of the corporate media saying, oh no, if Russia gets this information, it's going to launch a bioweapons attack false flag. And so that that's all very suspicious, but it nonetheless all points to the same direction, that there is this propaganda campaign that is meant to prolong the war and the United States and NATO is doing absolutely nothing in good faith to bring down or de-escalate the situation. They're not engaging in diplomacy. They're not engaging in any kind of peace talks. You had Joe Biden at the State of the Union claim that it's Russia that isn't doing it, when in fact Russia from back in December had called for diplomacy, had called for the idea that there could be security guarantees met on both sides, but that Russia's had to be taken seriously. And they weren't. The United States and NATO and Ukraine, by extension, rejected them, rejected Russia. And so that's what led to all of this. It led to this escalation and escalation. And we couldn't have predicted that it would have been inevitable for this intervention to occur. But Russia had been warning about how there would be consequences. And maybe it's on us also to understand that we cannot underestimate the fact that countries that are provoked and antagonized and militarily encircled and sanctioned, right, that eventually there will be a response, a response that may be not equal in measure, because I do not see the Russia-Ukraine situation as equal in measure if we look at the broad historical context to what NATO has done. Because not only has NATO been directly responsible for the tens plus 10,000 plus people who have died in eastern Ukraine through the militarization of Ukraine and also a heavy hand in the overthrow of Ukraine's government, which led to that civil war, but also regionally the role that NATO has played in eastern Europe and in the former Soviet bloc states right, in keeping this state of destitution and dependency, which has its own consequences, right, the role that NATO played in the fall of the Soviet Union. So you could really put NATO's hands on all uh, on all of that blood that happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. And of course, I mentioned the Yugoslav war, the invasion of Yugoslavia. And of course, NATO's role all around the world, from Libya to Syria to Iraq, right? I mean, Yemen, we can't, we can't underestimate or decontextualize what's happening in Ukraine without understanding NATO's role everywhere. And so Zelensky begging for a no-fly zone is essentially begging for his country to become like those victim nations that have faced NATO's onslaught in the past, right? And so anyone who claims that a no-fly zone is some kind of peace demand that it would get Russia to back off are 
either disingenuous or don't know what it means because there are about three out of five Americans who think that they want a no-fly zone, but of course they don't know what a no-fly zone is. They were not properly informed when Libya was being destroyed just 11 years ago. They were not properly informed during the mid to late 1990s when NATO was decimating Yugoslavia, and they haven't been properly informed about NATO's role in arming, stoking, antagonizing, and provoking all of these wars and conflicts and crises that have been raging worldwide in nearly every continent for the past several years. So people are not properly informed. They're propagandized. And the U.S. is the most propagandized country in the world. And that means that Zelensky can go to Congress calling for a no-fly zone. And even if the U.S. says, no, 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 I don't think we can, you can still have this propaganda course about it and continue to manufacture that continues to manufacture consent for war and keeps that on the table. Because even though I do believe that the U.S. and NATO might not want it right now, they do want all of the tools at their disposal on the table that have a possibility of being used when the time is right. And so that's why the propaganda is so useful, because if you can make sure that all the tools at your disposal are palatable to masses of people, then when the time is right, then potentially the resistance to it will be a lot less. But of course, that could also be a miscalculation too, given that most people don't want to see a direct U.S. intervention, don't want to see another war like Afghanistan and Iraq, even if it may be for more selfish reasons, self-interested reasons, which aren't illegitimate, but also are not necessarily based on a political worldview of solidarity and anti-interventionism and anti-imperialism. It's more so that I think most Americans who have any experience with war understand that it just doesn't benefit them and that it's likely either to kill them, make them incredibly mentally and economically unstable and uh, send them to countries that they have no interest in going in for better or for worse, right? <laughs> for reasons of they just don't see the value of being shipped to an Iraq or Afghanistan or uh, whether it is that they would rather just have the perks of the military that the military promises them through the GI Bill, et cetera, without the consequences. And, and, and all of that can be understandable given the political situation that we're in. So it's not necessarily a judgment. It's just a statement of fact that this is what's going on in the minds of Americans who have experience with wars in some direct capacity, ordinary people who join the military, right? These, these are people that we also have to reach with the peace message. And so we have to understand how they think. With that said, though, there isn't really much more to comment on with Zelensky, right? Zelensky is a puppet. I just wanted to talk about that development because I found it so striking that in the midst of a war which possibly has a solution and could have been brought to a speedy end very quickly, right? Ukraine could have just declared neutrality, established a mechanism for recognizing Russia's security guarantees that it's asking for, and also establish its own security guarantees. I, I don't believe that Russia would necessarily renounce those, right? NATO membership, not, not a question. That would not be allowed. Militarizing yourself with, with U.S. weapons and NATO weapons to become a de facto NATO state, also not allowed. But there could be other security guarantees, right? 
and Russia perhaps would have listened to them. But I don't think we are at that place anymore. I think that there's so much pressure on Ukraine to keep up this very contradictory posture and that places in turn pressure on Russia to continue this intervention to its final and logical conclusion, which is the complete submission of Ukraine's government, its military apparatus in particular, to Russia, to Russia's interests. So either Zelensky comes to the table, right, and starts to cooperate with what has been happening, Ukraine and Russia meeting together saying, okay, we're talking out these differences and we are getting somewhere. Either he gets on board or Ukraine, Ukraine's military and in effect society because the military is fighting within the society. So the society is also going to really reap a lot of costs. We see it with the refugees. We see it with the institutions and uh, the damage to Ukraine society worth billions of dollars. I mean, that's that's all the real costs of war. And so these very simple and honestly uh, just completely congruent demands with the norms of international law, right? Neutrality is completely within the boundaries of the UN convention. So it's not like these are just out of the question. It's not like Russia is asking for occupation of Ukraine or to plunder its economy or to have any kind of dual control of the government. That's not what Russia is asking even now. Russia scaled up its demands to include, it might sound huge, but it's, it doesn't seem huge to me when Ukraine has been so despondent. But now Russia wants Ukraine to change its constitution to enshrine neutrality and recognize Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states and also Crimea as uh, Russian territory, which has been the case since 2015 during the referendum. And the reason why is because Ukraine has been actively cutting off key food, water, resources, electricity from these regions and trying to starve them out while also shelling and destroying Donbass at the same time, militarily. So Russia wants that to stop, and it wants Ukraine's government to enshrine that within its constitution, that it won't just right agree to something like Minsk, but that its entire government will have a constitutional mandate to follow these peace accords. So Zelensky's not on board when he calls for a no-fly zone, and that should really give us an idea of where Ukraine's government is at, 